You're listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining me again. Tonight, I have uh, Dr. Jason Hooverman, who is a professor of vertebrate ecology. And we're going to be touching on uh, a whole different uh, slew of topics, really, primarily around um, uh, environmental stressors, things like pesticides and contaminants, and how they affect uh, amphibians as a whole in an in a aquatic uh, community, or I guess we should say a wetland, something similar to that effect. So we're going to get into all that and more. But um, of course, uh, usual housekeeping at first. Uh, I want to thank everyone for the nice five-star reviews on Apple Podcast. great way to support the show is to just take a few minutes, leave a nice five-star review. And uh, other than that, if you want to support the show in a different way, consider becoming a patron on Patreon. Uh, I have a few different tiers. I have one as low as a dollar a month. So if you want to support the show, just a little way to say thank you. Uh, I have the $1 tier. And uh, the most popular is the $5 tier. $5 tier will get you a shout-out at the beginning of an upcoming episode, which is pretty cool. And uh, just check out the links in the bio. I have a couple of different things going on. I have the merch shop and a couple of other things. So uh, any, anything you guys want to get into, support the show, et cetera, uh, just follow the links in the bio. It'll uh, take you where you want to go. So other than that, usual housekeeping and stuff out of the way. Uh, Jason, uh, I want to welcome you to the show. How are you doing tonight? Oh, I'm doing great, Dan. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. I'm glad. Uh, I know I, I reached out to you a while ago. I'm glad we finally got to, uh, we finally got to touch base. Yeah, for sure. So why don't we start off uh, with you and your, your background and whatnot. Why don't you tell us, um, well, first, why don't we start at the beginning? So what were your earliest experiences with um, amphibians or the natural world or whatnot? And what led you to where you are today? Yeah, sure. Um, so I grew up outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, so kind of typical suburban lifestyle. You know, as a kid, we spent a lot of time outdoors. Uh, most of that was kind of playing sports. So things like football, you know, street hockey, basketball, those types of things. but we were really fortunate that we actually had a, a little bit of forest uh, in our neighborhood. So that provided us a lot of opportunities to get out into nature. And, you know, although we didn't see a lot of wildlife because it was really a suburban uh, area, we were able to see some herbs. Uh, so occasionally we come across this kind of random toad, you know, kind of my favorite was a black rack snake that uh, I was able to track down and, and, and get that one. Uh, and obviously tons and tons of garter snakes in the area as well. So, you know, those things really caught my eye. Um, but I think one of the most influential things for me was actually watching nature documentaries. Um, you know, anything that, you know, David Attenborough was doing uh, at the time, I was uh, super zoned in on. And, you know, my dad and I, we would just sit down and kind of watch those shows. Um, now, at the time, most of those shows were kind of focused on those, you know, kind of big, you know, charismatic megafauna, you know, things like, you know, African wildlife, you know, the mammals and birds in those areas. And there, and there wasn't a ton on herbs. Um, so, I spent a lot of time in the library just kind of, you know, checking out books on, on various types of herbs. And I, I had a true fascination with snakes at the time. Um, but unfortunately, my mom would never let me uh, actually get a snake. So that that came later in life. I was able to get that once I got out of the house with her. But she was just absolutely terrified of them. Um, but those are some of my really early experiences kind of dealing with, you know, you know, herbs in general. Um, but then when the time came for college, um, I, I had an interest in ecology, you know, kind of being outdoors, kind of the, the outdoor kind of lifestyle, those types of things. But I obviously had no idea what that meant uh, at all. So I, I started looking at programs. Uh, and again, having that interest in herps, I was looking for kind of field courses that might be available for me to take. And uh, luckily, the University of Pittsburgh, just down the road from me, had a three-week field course in herpetology. Um, so I decided to go there. So my, my entire college decision was just based on that single field course. Uh, that the that the university had. Um, so I started to go uh, the University of Pittsburgh. Um, 
you know, my sophomore year, I got to take that three week field course and man, that was just awesome. We just got immersed in herpetology. Um, you know, we saw lots of uh, reptiles, but for me, what really stood out for the first time is just seeing the diversity of amphibians that are up in this area. The, the field course was about two hours north of Pittsburgh in a place called Pima Tuning. Um, and, you know, we were able to find, you know, great tree frogs, uh, wood frogs, spring peepers. Uh, I remember picking up a, a slimy salamander, for example, and getting that black goo all over your hand. It just sticks for days. Um, you know, things like two-line salamanders, but probably my favorite was a spotted salamander that we ended up digging out of a log. Um, you know, just kind of ripping through that log, trying to find uh, amphibians. So, um, you know, that experience was just awesome. I had a great instructor for that. His name was Tony Bledsoe. Uh, he was actually an ornithologist, but um, had a great passion for the outdoors. And he really kind of instilled that in me as well. And I had him for a variety of other courses at, at the university. Um, you know, unfortunately, he passed away a couple of years ago, but kind of that legacy kind of, st kind of sticks with me to this day of, um, you know, his instruction over the years. Um, so after that, um, I started to look for research experiences, really. Um, so I was able to get a fellowship um, my sophomore, my junior year, summer of my junior year, at the Carnegie Museum of Natural History, where I got to work with Dr. John Weeds. Uh, so he does a lot of kind of phylogenetic work with uh, herps in general. And uh, the project I was put on was actually looking at linen digit reduction in salamanders. Um, so if your audience is familiar with salamanders, you know there's a broad diversity of salamanders. But one of the cool things is just how many species have lost limbs. So you think about sirens, right? They've lost their hind limbs, uh, but also amphumas that had digit reduction as well as kind of reduction in the, the limbs. Uh, so I was basically in the museum doing all these measurements of, um, you know, amphibians and, you know, salamanders from all across the world. Uh, so it's just really cool to go up and, you know, pull a jar off a shelf and be like, all right, you know, what species am I measuring today? Um, so I spent hours and hours um, in the in the museum kind of measuring those things and I was actually able to get a, a paper out of that work as well which is really cool as undergrad um and then my senior year which i think is really the most kind of influential for me overall was um a professor started to work there his name was rick Rowier, Um and he worked with amphibians did a lot of ecological work with amphibians and he was looking for assistance um so i basically put in my application and, and got the position with him and that really opened my eyes to doing ecological research. Um, and that's really the reason why I'm here today. You know, the, the experiences I gained with him um, uh, after I graduated, I spent a year as a lab tech in his lab where we got to, you know, go into these ponds and, you know, just sit down in a pond and listen to frogs call and the mating season, those types of things. Um, and you know, that started me on a path to get a PhD. So I stayed on with him for, you know, another six years and gave my training in basically ecological research focusing on amphibians um, learned a lot about aquatic systems as well um, and kind of the interplay between all these different species that inhabit these wetland habitats um, and i really realized kind of the, the the cool thing about amphibian research is uh, the different scales you can look at research questions so you can go out into the field you know sample their populations get an idea of um, you know, different patterns out there. So the abundance of different species, why they're in certain habitats, and you come up with hypotheses to explain those. And then you can do experiments in the laboratory or in mesocosms, which are just basically large tanks, um, or even do field experiments to test your hypotheses. So, you know, it really opened my eyes to all the different types of research that could be done with this really great model system. And it's a system that I just truly love and had a passion for my whole life. Um, Let's see. So after that, uh, after I got my PhD, I started working 
uh, as a postdoc. Um, so I worked with uh, people such as Jason Rohr. Uh, he at the time, he's at the University of um, uh, Penn State. He went down to South Florida after that. Um, worked with Matt Gray at the University of Tennessee, who I think you've had on the, the show recently. Um, also worked with Dr. Peter Johnson at the University of Colorado. Uh, so I had a really great kind of set of mentors uh, who have all kind of done different aspects of amphibian ecology. And, you know, for me, what I started to develop over the years was kind of interest in, you know, disease ecology, which is something we won't really focus on today uh, as much, but really kind of ecotoxicology is where my lab's really gone in the past couple of years. So let's see, in 2012, I started at uh, Purdue and I've been in the Department of Forestry and Natural Resources ever since. So really kind of continuing on that thread of, you know, understanding amphibian ecology. Interesting. That's, it's, you know, it's funny because I have scientists on the show and there's always seems to be two approaches. You have people who sort of got into the science aspect of it first and sort of stumbled in to mm -hmm. amphibians. And then you have people who kind of really just made a beeline straight for herps. <laughs> and I, I totally feel you about the whole snake thing. I went, I went through the same thing when I was young and <laughs> when I was on, out on my own, that was the first thing I got. What'd you get? Uh, the first snake I actually had back in around, this was around 2002, was, it was, a, of course, a, a ball python. Was, you know, this uh -huh. is before the morphs and everything like that were, were as prolific as they are today. But uh, there was that, and then I picked up my California king snake, who I, I still have. So that's oh, about, nice. yeah, about about 20 years now I've had him. But so Yeah, my first one was a, a gray-banded king snake and kind of a, a side story on this one. So when I was up at that field station as a graduate student doing my research, um, you know, we had uh, a bunch of people living in the same place and I, I left for the weekend and I told the roommate not to touch the tank at all. Um, and he ended up lifting up the lid at some point over the weekend and lost the snake and I never found him again. Um, so my, my second snake was a ball python, which I still have today. <laughs> <laughs> That's terrible about that being open. Oh, I, yeah. I mean, if I, I have, when I was more of a, I mean, I only have the three snakes now, but when I was more of a snake person, I, uh, I had a carpet python that actually did, it oh, did yeah. escape. And, um, I started thinking to myself, wow, I really don't know where I'm going to go with this because it could be anywhere. It's, you know, it's an arboreal snake. It could be anywhere. Right. So I used, this is years ago. I used to work at night and around three or four o'clock in the morning, I was sitting in my kitchen and, uh, just having ice cream of all things. And I look over and I see, the carpet python just sort of kind of serpentining its way up the wine rack. <laughs> and I said, okay, this is, this is as good as it gets. So I just kind of collected it and put it back in its enclosure. And that was the end of that. But that's good. Yeah. You found it. Yeah. 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 I, I kept that story <laughs> to myself for a long time, but <laughs> so I, I want to start our discussion with kind of a general question, but, um, we all generally understand that pesticides, pollutants, et cetera, all these things very significantly affect amphibians. But my question is, why study amphibians so specifically when it comes to this? Why not fish or why not livestock or why not, why not other animals? Why the focus on amphibians when it comes to these types of um, contaminants? Yeah, that, that's a great question. I, I get this a lot from, you know, people from all kinds of walks of life. You know, when I'm 
especially when I'm interacting with the general public, it's, you know, kind of, you know, why are you working with amphibians and, and those types of questions. So I, I kind of treat this like a, a menu option. You know, there's lots of different ways you can kind of, you know, justify, you know, using amphibians and kind of focusing on them. So uh, I'll list a few of them off. You, you've probably heard some of these uh, in the past as well, but, you know, from an amphibian focused standpoint, um, you know, as your audience knows, their populations are declining all across the globe. And, you know, this really, you know, this research kind of picked up in the 80s and 90s and through the 2000s, and we're starting to kind of realize that, hey, this is a big concern about these declines. Um, and obviously, habitat loss is the number one driver um, of this, right? If you think about the United States, like we've lost, what, 50% of our total wetlands. You know, so that's had a huge impact on amphibian populations and drove some of the declines, at least in North America. Um, but kind of one of the, the second leading causes of declines is actually what we think is contaminants. You know, contaminants are diverse. You know, there's lots of different types of them, um, and they're everywhere. You know, some of the things I'll talk about today, you know, especially like pesticides, you know, these things are used everywhere and again to these systems. So, um, you know, another contaminant that we're working on called PFAS, we realize this is globally distributed um, as well. So, you know, for me, that's, uh, you know, one of the main motivators for, you know, looking at contaminants because, you know, amphibians are declining. And if this is a potential cause of some of these declines, then we need to figure out what's going on, basically. Um, you know, a, another um, kind of approach I use for explaining this is thinking about, you know, more broadly thinking about ecosystems. You know, amphibians play a critical role in ecosystems, right? They're, they're predators, they're prey, they're herbivores. Um, and, you know, kind of give you an example of just how important they are. Uh, there's a, some cool studies out there that have looked at things like the biomass of salamanders in the Smoky Mountains. And it's actually estimated that the, I think it's the biomass of just a redback salamander in the Smokies, that total biomass would exceed the biomass of birds and mammals in the Smokies, right? Or if you think about another study, I think it's from Illinois, where they looked at a small population of cricket frogs and demonstrated they're consuming millions and millions of insects per year, just in a single small, you know, population. So, you know, without these species, you know, we lose those services they're providing for the ecosystem. Um, so again, if we're, if we're impacting the populations with contaminants, we could, you know, lose those key services uh, at the ecosystem level. Um, you know, an, another way you can kind of frame this as well is through a, kind of a human lens and, you know, kind of what does this tell us for humans? Right. So these species often share the same environments that, that we do. Right. So think about these aquatic habitats that we like to go, you know, kayak in or fish in. You know, if we see problems in these habitats with amphibians, that might suggest to humans, hey, there's a there's a big problem in these habitats. Right. That, you know, we might want to do some research to figure out if that could have an impact on our own health. Um, in another kind of health perspective is the cascading effects of losing amphibians to human health. Right. So if we. If we have fewer frogs that we're talking about, they're consuming those insects. Those insects can have things like vector-borne diseases. So think about mosquitoes, those types of species, you know, malaria, for example. Uh, we might see an increase in disease risk for humans if we lose these key species from the environment. Um, you know, another thing kind of scientifically, um, you know, amphibians have this very thin permeable skin, right? So that causes them to uptake chemicals very rapidly. Um, so from a scientific standpoint, they're an ideal species for assessing contaminants because they can really uptake these things uh, very easily. Um, and kind of like I was talking about before, in terms of like a model system, you know, these species are very easy to collect. Uh, you can raise them in large numbers through experiments. Um, and if you think about birds, mammals, some other taxa, you know, it's not as feasible to collect a bunch of, you know, deer 
and do the experiments that we do from an ecotox perspective. Um, so they, they, they provide a lot of benefits from, you know, kind of a model, model system standpoint. Um, and maybe the last one I kind of mentioned as well, you know, I often do this with farmers around, um, especially in Indiana, where you have lots of corn and soybean, you know, I kind of underscore the fact that, you know, we have this growing human population with these huge needs for food, right? And we need sustainable and productive agriculture to feed that human population. And agrochemicals play a clear role in helping us, you know, achieve that goal of having, you know, sustainable agriculture that's hopefully as productive as possible. But there are risks that are associated with the use of those agrochemicals. Uh, and especially that, the work that we do on, on pesticides is kind of the hope that this could help us determine what that risk is to the environment of using these types of chemicals. And therefore, maybe that can help with regulation or management practices to, you know, mitigate or at least, you know, try to reduce some of the impacts that we're having on these systems and you know ultimately you know increasing awareness that you know some of these things could be an issue that you know we need to consider in the future can you elaborate a little bit on some of the harmful substances that you study along with some of their effects and but i mean by that i mean you'd mentioned um i guess it would be think well, like things like fertilizer and pesticides and things like that i mean are there any that are particularly harmful or are there any that you work with more than other chemicals like can you i guess give us like a case study of maybe of a couple of things that you've studied and what the effects are yeah yeah so um yeah feel free to interrupt me as i go along through this because this can can get kind of long-winded but um you know we do a lot of work with pesticides um so historically for the past you know 15 years or so i've been involved in pesticide research uh and more re recently we've been uh, doing some work with something called pfos which i'll talk about as well but um, so from a pesticide standpoint, when, when I was in grad school, you know, work on kind of pesticides was just kind of taking hold, um, you know, again, with this growing awareness of amphibian declines, the potential of contaminants, uh, causing some of those declines, we realized that we needed more research to kind of figure out what was actually going on. So really in the kind of early 2000s, uh, time period. Uh, people just really start to dive in and look at different types of uh, pesticides and how they might be influencing uh, amphibian populations. And, you know, a lot of this work was done in collaboration with my advisor as well. But just kind of for your audience in terms of the scale of how much we use in terms of pesticides, uh, in the U.S. alone, we use about 1.2 billion pounds of pesticides per year, which is just a staggering number. Um, and that's, again, year in, year out, we're using that amount of uh, kind of chemical on our systems. Um, and again, most of this is in the agricultural sector, right? So for our crops, uh, but also we use them around our homes, right? So we're, we're spraying weeds or they're coming up in our, in our driveway and, you know, through our gravel, those types of things. We're also spraying them to control, you know, mosquitoes around our homes or maybe, you know, cockroaches, those types of uh, organisms inside our homes as well. So it's, it's not just agriculture. It's also around our homes that we're using these chemicals. But like I said, you know, research really started to ramp up, uh, in the two thousands, right about the time I was doing you know, my graduate work. So over the years, you know, we've done some work with things like carburo and malathion. Uh, these are acetylcholine esterase inhibitors. Uh, so for your audience, basically what they do is, uh, it basically interferes with neurotransmission. Um, so it impacts the elimination of the neurotransmitter and kind of leads to overstimulation. And eventually, you know, the animal kind of goes into um, kind of shock and kind of dies from that overall exposure. Um, so these chemicals are broadly used. Uh, malathion, if you've, you've heard of that one, it's used for mosquito control, um, especially in the southern United States. Uh, so it's one of those chemicals that 
you can actually directly apply to aquatic systems. And the idea is you're going to either hit the adults, uh, but more likely you're going to hit the larvae of the adults before they, you know, um, emerge out of the wetland. Um, so, you know, for your audience, you're not, you know, you can have runoff into these systems, but you can also have direct spray of some of these chemicals into the system as well. Um, uh, another group of insecticides that we've worked with are the neonicotinoids. Um, so some examples of that include clothiandin, thiamethoxone, uh, imidacloprid. Uh, imidacloprid you can get over the counter, um, you know, at your your local, uh, you know, uh, Home Depot or you know Walmart, for example. Um, but this particular chemical is really interesting. So it's or this group of chemicals is interesting because it's uh, a seed coating that's applied to the corn or soybean seed, and the the hope is that when the plant germinates is it's going to uptake those chemicals and provide protection for that plant at some point whenever when insects kind of show up. So it's it's kind of a break from uh, typical what we call integrated pest management. And the main goal of integrated pest management is to really only apply pesticides when you need those pesticides. So when an insect shows up in your field, you say, okay, well, now it's time to go apply this to, to help control that insect. So it's with neonics, it's more of a prophylactic uh, application. So you don't know if the insects are going to show up. They probably will, but you're kind of hoping that it gets, um, that it will provide that protection. But the downside of these chemicals is that the vast majority of that chemical doesn't actually end up in the plant. Uh, so let's say maybe maximum about 20% gets in the plant. The other 80% is left in the soil um, where it can degrade, but with neonics in particular, when they bind to the sediment and soil, they tend to stick around a lot longer and have longer half-lives. Um, so again, they're not kind of breaking down very rapidly. And so when you have rain events then, that could end up washing all these chemicals into an aquatic system. Um, so with, with these types of insecticides, you know, the types of work that we typically do or kind of start off with, uh, again, especially kind of early on when, you know, workers kind of ramping up to examine pesticides was to do what we call acute toxicity experiments or LC50 experiments. So the idea is try to figure out how much of a chemical does it take to kill 50% of your test population. And then you can use that to kind of figure out, okay, based on how much chemical we're seeing in a wetland when you actually go out and sample, is that chemical going to be concerned for that amphibian population in particular? So give you an example of this with malathion. Um, so my advisor was doing some work on malathion with amphibians that I helped out with, and we use a variety of eastern uh, species, so things like uh, American toads, uh, wood frogs, green frogs, leopard frogs, um, so a broad diversity of species. And the LC50 for this chemical ranges from one to about six milligrams per liter. Okay, so that's what's going to kill about 50% of the tadpoles in your little tubs that you're testing them in. And when you go to a wetland, you can detect malathion up to about 0.6 milligrams per liter. Okay, so that number is less than the LC50. But if you kind of calculate these things out based on that data, if malathion got into that system, you'd kill between two and 35% of the individuals in a population, again, depending on the species and its LC50 value. So again, similar results are found with things like carbaryl, uh, where you're able to estimate these LC50 values and see how close that gets to what's actually found in nature. And for many of these chemicals, you know, you're, you're kind of floating right around where in natural wetlands, the concentrations that we're detecting could actually be uh, lethal to these amphibians. So, you know, those pesticides I just mentioned, carbaryl malathion, are a little different than the neonicotinoids. Um, 
So our work with neonics has shown they're actually generally less, less toxic to amphibians. And the reason for that is they're really designed to target insects. So that's one of the nice things about these chemicals is their toxicity to vertebrates is expected to be much lower than it is to invertebrates. Um, and the reason for that is that the neonics actually bind more strongly to insect receptors than vertebrate receptors. In particular, the, the insects have these neotic, uh, sorry, nicotinic receptors and a higher ratio of them than vertebrates do. So luckily for vertebrate species, there's lower toxicity, acute toxicity, but the downside is, again, thinking more broadly about ecosystems in general, is that they are super toxic to invertebrates. So your audience might have heard about some of the, the, the issues with bees and applying some of these chemicals and you know declines that we're seeing in bee populations uh, across the world as a consequence of uh, what we think is neonic exposure, basically. Um, so kind of following up on that, you know, that's kind of one side of the story. Um, so that's kind of the direct toxicity kind of piece of the puzzle when it comes to contaminants. Um, you know, the other aspect of some of the research that we've done is looking at, you know, sublethal exposures to contaminants, because there could be a variety of other effects that occur, especially for amphibians that can be, you know, kind of problematic, right? So you could think about changes in growth or development that, you know, impact their ability to metamorphose and come up out of these wetlands. Uh, once they're going through metamorphosis. So that's one of the things that we've found when we look at the effects of pest, uh, insecticides in particular, is that because they impair the nervous system, many of these tadpoles actually have reduced foraging activity. Uh, so they consume less algae and other resources. And they're also allocating resources to detoxifying the chemical itself. And that takes away from other functions, basically growth and development. So we typically see slower growth, slower developmental rates when they're exposed to these insecticides as well. So um, that's kind of the, the, the insects, uh, insecticide side of the story. Um, you know, some of the other contaminants that we've worked with include things like herbicides. Um, so herbicides, um, you know, there's really two really well-known types of herbicides, uh, Roundup and Atrazine in particular. Um, and they really provide kind of two different types of stories when it comes to amphibians. So it, it's, it's pretty interesting to kind of think about that. So, um, let's start with Roundup, which I think is a really cool uh, story here. So this is actually the number one herbicide in the world right now. And as your audience is, is probably pretty familiar with, tons of commercials for Roundup, right? So especially this time of year, it's starting to turn to spring, hopefully. Um, and, you know, everyone's going to be out there kind of wanting to control their weeds. Uh, so it's really kind of risen as one of the top herbicides that are used. Um, and you can spray it on your crops. Um, without worrying about killing those crops because crops have been designed now to basically handle that chemical. So they've been genetically engineered to deal with Roundup. Um, but when it comes to amphibians, you know, one of the nasty parts about Roundup is not necessarily the active ingredient, which is glyphosate. It's actually the surfactant that's in Roundup. Uh, so there's lots of different surfactants. Um, one of those is POEA, polyethoxylated taloamine, you know, kind of a, a long name there. Uh, but basically what the surfactant does for um, the herbicide is it, it coats the plant and allows the actual glyphosate to penetrate the waxy cuticle of the plant. So without that surfactant, the pesticide just rolls off the plant and it can't penetrate. So without the surfactant, right, it's useless. Um, but unfortunately for amphibians, uh, especially species with gills, you know, even fish, you know, it basically ends up suffocating the tadpole or, you know, the fish in this case as well. 
so because they have these gills, uh, basically you knock out respiration and you get very quick mortality of amphibians. Um, so similar to you know the, the work I talked about with uh, Mount Thion, Carbaryl, when we do some LC50 experiments, what we realize is that the, the toxicity of Roundup, again, including those surfactants, is close to what we actually would expect to find in nature when it comes to the, the amount of Roundup in these systems. So there, there's some significant concerns for impacts on amphibians if Roundup gets into those systems. So to kind of contrast that, um, the atrazine story is, is pretty interesting. Uh, so atrazine used to be the number one herbicide that got replaced by Roundup. Uh, but atrazine was used for a number of years. And uh, the, the issue with Roundup, or sorry, with atrazine, is that it's highly persistent in the environment. So it doesn't break down very rapidly. Uh, and the other issue is it's an endocrine disruptor. So basically it interferes with reproduction. And for amphibians, you know, atrazine is not directly toxic. It, it takes a significant amount to actually kill a tadpole. Um, but the big issue with amphibians is it does impair the reproductive system. Uh, so some of the work that came out with this uh, was from Tyrone Hayes. Um, and what he found is that actually uh, male frogs developed ovaries in their testes following atrazine exposure. Um, so that's a, a really significant concern when it comes to, you know, obviously reproduction and the status of these populations. And, you know, if your audience is aware or unaware, I definitely encourage them to kind of look up some of the, the, the press coverage of, you know, atrazine, especially Tyrone Hayes and his battle with uh, the industry uh, over his results and the significance of results. Uh, so it, it, it's a long, long story that has a kind of a, you know, kind of an interesting twist to it when it comes to the, the pesticide industry as well. Um, but one of the other things that I, I think we'll get to a little later on is, you know, atrazine exposure also suppresses the immune function in amphibians as well. So that can have some cascading effects on uh, disease risk for them. Um, and then another group of, of pesticides we've worked with um, are the fungicides. And this is something we've just recently started in my lab. I have a graduate student that's starting to work on this. Um, and it, it's really motivated by kind of the rise in fungicide use. You know, compared to herbicides and insecticides, we've seen a, uh, you know, kind of those two groups kind of dominating the use when it comes to pesticides. But uh, fungicides have really ramped up over the past couple of years. Uh, and mainly the, the reason behind that is the growth in fungal pathogens. You know, when we look across the globe, especially due to climate change, we see an increasing number of these fungal pathogens on the rise, especially in cropping systems. So as a result, we're seeing this huge increase in the use of fungicides. Um, and, you know, in, in the agricultural sector, you know, they're not just spraying these fungicides once, they're spraying it repeatedly, in some cases weekly, to control some of these fungal pathogens, which are, are very, you know, hard to control overall. So, you know, they, they, they break down pretty quickly in the environment and, unless they adhere to sediment again. So similar story to what I talked about with the neonics, uh, they can bind to that sediment, which allows them to persist in these environments uh, more readily. And what we're finding for, you know, LC50 values is, is pretty concerning because again, uh, things like plyocostrobin, chlorothalonil, which are two in fungicides that we've looked at, you know, the uh, LC50s are anywhere from, you know, 15 to 50 parts per billion. And that's pretty close or actually way lower than what we actually would detect in the environment. So again, this particular chemical appears to be really nasty. If it gets in these systems, it can do a, a lot of damage to amphibian populations. Um, so that's a lot of our work with uh, fungicides and other uh, pesticides. Um, you know, 
One of the other groups that we're working on right now is completely different. Uh, these are PFOSs or per poly polyfluoroalkyl substances, also known as forever chemicals. Uh, these things have been in use for over 50 years, and there's like 400 different types of them. Um, they were used in a, a variety of um, industrial as well as commercial applications. So if you've ever seen a, a photo of you know, someone putting out a fuel fire on a plane, you'll see this giant white foam that they're trying to use to put it out. That's all PFAS. Um, Scotchgard, so a lot of garments, you know, shoes, you know, anything with waterproofing, Gore-Tex, that was all kind of PFAS based. Um, it was also used as coatings on food boxes, uh, carpets for stain resistance. So this chemical was just, these chemicals are just basically reused everywhere. And what we realized over the past, you know, decade or so, is that they're they are distributed everywhere now so even if you go up to the arctic in some of these places you're still detecting uh these pfos's um so we've uh, basically started to do some work looking at the effects on amphibians um we have some money through the department of defense to look at toxicity values for many of these chemicals um and we've worked a lot with things like northern leopard frogs uh, american toads tiger salamanders and we've uh, done exposures in the larval stage, so the tadpoles uh, and other larvae. Um, we've looked at subadults, and we've done different types of exposures. So, you know, just expose them in the water. We've also dosed their food, so things like crickets, and fed them salamanders, um, and also just exposed them to the sediment. So we've done a lot of different approaches to look at the, the effects of these chemicals. And one of the things we're finding is you know, bioaccumulation is one of the main problems associated with PFAS. So these guys, they uptake these chemicals very rapidly, especially in the aquatic environment. And as a consequence of that, if you think about ecosystems, you know, that has the potential to kind of magnify throughout the food web as other things eat those amphibians, those chemicals could be passed on to other species. Um, but the you know, the good thing about uh, PFAS is that it's not directly toxic. It takes a, a large amount of these chemicals uh, to, to cause mortality, but the downside is there are sublethal effects, as I mentioned with some of these other contaminants. Uh, so, for example, we see things like reduced body condition and things like leopard frogs and tiger salamanders when they're exposed to low levels, you know, about 10 ppb or so of PFAS. Um, and we also see this in the terrestrial environment as well. So there's lots of potential sublethal effects that can occur um, for amphibians if they're exposed to these chemicals. And that's kind of, you know, one of our newer areas that we're kind of working on. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of a, a long-winded response to all the different types of, you know, kind of chemicals we're looking at. No, that's, that's a very, very good description. I was, it's funny because as I was, as like, I mean, just so everybody knows, whenever we go through an interview, I always start to think of questions in my head as, uh, as the guests and I are going back and forth and answering. And it's funny because you answered about three of the questions that I, that I had <laughs> as they came up. I, I. I was curious, though, about factors that could compound all this, meaning let's just say that we have um, all things being equal. Let's just say that we have a pristine wetland that is uh, contaminated by, say, pe pesticides, herbicides, any single or combination of all of them. Are there any conditions that would compound and worsen the effects of these chemicals? If we introduce, say, like disease, like if we introduce ranavirus or 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 chytrid or a or a drought or climate change, are any of those factors at work 
as well that are making this worse or what's what's the situation with those types of situations yeah i mean it's a great question and you know that that really gets to the crux of you know kind of the challenge is there's you know when we start thinking about getting these chemicals into natural systems you know there's so many other factors out there that could play a role in what's kind of going on so you know from a, a climate standpoint you know one of the, the basic things is you know toxicity of most contaminants tends to increase with temperature right because you have just greater activity of those molecules in the organism uh, so we typically see faster mortality rates at warmer temperatures so if you think about climate change kind of playing out you know some of these you know, chemicals could be a little bit more toxic under these warmer conditions um, than we'd expect if we, you know, do them under standardized laboratory conditions where it's all perfect, you know, it's roughly 72 degrees in the lab, you know, but, you know, say it gets up to 80 degrees in some of these ponds, you know, it could be a significant challenge. Um, another really interesting factor is actually predation. You know, if we go to any pond or wetland, you know, you're typically going to see some type of predator. It could be an invertebrate predator, something like a dragonfly or a water bug. Uh, could be a fish, it could be another amphibian, say a you know, red spot newt or a, an abystomatid salinator, something like that. Uh, so what some research has actually shown is that you know, beyond just the consumption of a tadpole, predators also induce a stress response in tadpoles. Uh, so that stress response, you know, it basically mediates behavioral and morphological changes that function to reduce predation risk. So for a tadpole, for example, you know, the mere presence of um, uh, a predator in the system scares that tadpole. They smell the chemical cues coming off of that predator. They shut down activity levels. Uh, a really cool thing some of the species do is actually change their body shape. Uh, so great tree frog tadpoles actually get a deeper tail fin. And they also get a red tail fin in the presence of predators. Um, so there's some additional stories to go along with that. But, you know, kind of the, the main point is if the, the predators in the system scaring these prey and stressing them out, that actually does make these chemicals, in some cases, more toxic than without that predator. So, for example, um, there was some work done by uh, Rick Relier again, where he looked at carbaryl, and uh, I think it was the LC50 for um uh, great tree frog tadpoles it went from about nine milligrams per liter down to two milligrams per liter so it basically made that chemical more toxic if they just smelled a predator in the water and again that predator wasn't actually able to consume them it, they just smelled it in the water uh, so again if we think about these natural habitats right they're most likely going to have some type of predator in the system that that can actually increase toxicity and again for this example for carbaryl what we found or what he found was that actually pushes that LC50 down into an area in which that chemical is likely to be found in that system. Um, so again, yeah, predators can play an important role in that. Um, you know, you kind of mentioned disease, you know, pathogens are also present in many of these systems. And we've done some work uh, with rantivirus infection in tadpoles and found a very similar thing that they saw with the predator uh, experiments as well. So if you give these tadpoles this virus infection, uh, that actually makes the, the pesticide, in this case, is carbaryl again, more toxic to those amphibians. Uh, so again, that's, that's a big concern when you start thinking about these ecological interactions that are playing out in these systems, making these toxins, you know, more toxic uh, for the amphibians. So, you know, definitely there's lots of factors from that perspective that can, you know, compound the effect of the contaminant in the system. Quick sidebar, and I, I, I included this question because um, it's not necessarily 100% um, in line with the overall topic, but hey, I host a show, I can do what I want. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right, 
behavioral fever in frogs. Uh, I was looking through some of your publications, and there was a publication uh-huh. that you took part in that addressed the behavioral fever in frogs. I think it was with regard to ranavirus, right? You just mentioned ranavirus. That kind of mm-hmm. would, yeah, yeah. Put, my, put it on my radar. Can, we, can you discuss that a little bit for us in terms of how, like, how does that happen and what are the effects of behavioral fever in frogs? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, this is a really cool study. So this was done in collaboration with uh, uh, Jason Rohr's lab. So at the time he was in South Florida. This was before he just he just moved up to Notre Dame a couple years ago. Uh, but in collaboration with him as his graduate student. So, you know, if we think about kind of purpose of fever, right? So think about an endotherm, you know, such as mammals, right? They typically, you know, fever is basically elevating the, the body temperature. You know, why would they want to do this? Well, it could be a byproduct of the infection, but it can also function to stimulate the immune system. And especially some proteins become more active. When they're more active, they can switch on genes and that can switch on key genes for immune defense. Uh, and again, you can also think about that temperature also helping to eliminate a pathogen that might be sensitive to those slight changes in temperature. But as you know, right, amphibians are ectotherms, right? They're not cap- capable of generating their own heat. You know, so fever in that traditional sense of what an endotherm would do is not possible. Um, however, they could use thermoregulation. So basically, this behavioral fever is just like thermoregulation. So by altering the behavior, of the amphibian to seek out warmer microclimates, that helps to elevate their overall body temperature. So in this particular study, um, what the graduate student did was basically expose these southern toads to ranavirus and then looked at their thermal preference. So basically she used like little thermometers and a little test arena where she had different temperatures and was able to kind of track the usage of those microhabitats of the toads using that you know, the thermometer. Um, and as you'd expect, right, the, the toads actually sought out warmer microclimates when they had the infection. So the idea here is that what they're trying to do is ramp up their immune system at those higher temperatures, and that seems to help them fight off that ranavirus infection. So essentially, you have this thermoregulation leads to a behavioral fever, which helps to reduce their overall disease risk. Uh, so yeah, pretty, pretty cool study. Uh, I was glad to be part of it. And um, yeah, kind of a fascinating uh, approach to kind of thinking about how you know animals can fight off disease when they don't have you know the ability to control their own body temperature um outside the environment it is interesting because we i mean at least on on my end i I guess i could say since um you know i'm more of a hobbyist but um we're always kind of looking to figure out different behaviors and in a captive setting it can be a little bit difficult because you're limited to you know what you have although you try to recreate everything as best you can right i've often heard from people who have seen frogs in in their wild you know wild situations uh some frogs basking in mm-hmm. like extremely high i mean like above 100 degrees fahrenheit i mean not necessarily yeah. for hours on end but uh, i'm always curious in terms of like when things do, uh, excuse me, when frogs do things that are kind of outside the realm of what we would normally expect. And this is just such a great example of that, seeking a hotter temperature. You don't know if they happen to seek out full sun, do you? Or they just sought out like a, a higher... Oh, yeah, that, that's a great question. They did In this study, they just sought out higher temperature uh, because it, this is all done inside the laboratory. This has not been done in the field yet, at least with ranavirus. Um, this might have been done with something like uh, the kitchen fungus, BD, um, but I'd have to look into that a little bit more. Uh, but I suspect they might have seen that some species where they'll actually go and kind of seek out full sun 
maybe to kill those chytrid spores that are on their body or something like that. Yeah, it's something I've been curious about. I've I've had a couple of guests on. We talked about chytrid and whatnot, but I was always curious about the role of basking in terms of, I guess, you know, behavioral disease mitigation or, or whatever you want to call it. I guess the I'd maybe, you know, trying to seek out uh, whether it's the UV radiation, whether it's the increased temperature, whether it's a combination of both. It's just that's one of those things that always intrigued me. But um, I mean, getting back to the the, the pesticide and uh, herbicide and whatnot. Are there are certain species of, of amphibian, whether it's frogs or salamanders, toads, whatever, that are more tolerant of pollution? And is that impacting amphibian populations as well? Yeah, another great question. And, you know, this is one of the, the more challenging questions, I think, as well, because when you look across studies, especially from the ecotox perspective, most of them, you know, they don't test the broad diversity of species. Maybe it's one, maybe it's two species. Uh, and oftentimes they also just focus on a single population of a species as well. And when you look at those experiments, you see slight variation in you know, how they design the experiments or the test conditions. Uh, they might use different developmental stages. Um, you know, all these things can kind of contribute to some variation that you see in toxicity values. Uh, so it makes it kind of challenging to compare across species. Um, However, when we look at, you know, most of the work, what we generally see, especially when it comes to like acute toxicity trials, is, you know, lots of similarities across our species. And I think a lot of that's driven by, you know, the physiology. Most amphibians have pre-simmer physiologies. So as a consequence, you'd expect most of the uh, kind of toxicity values to be pretty similar for a given contaminant. Um, you know, there are a few exceptions. So one of those is seen with uh, a recent study that came out with endosulfin. This is a, an insecticide. But in this particular study, what they did was they basically tested all 15 species in a single study. And they used this phylogenetic approach to assess toxicity. And what they found in this particular study was that uh, bufonids, so toads, were less susceptible than hylids or tree frogs, uh, which were in turn less sensitive than ranids or your kind of true frogs. Um, now, the mechanism underlying that uh, isn't totally clear at this point. Um, you know, it could just be, you know, certain maybe developmental characteristics. Obviously, things like bufonids develop very quickly, whereas ranids have a little bit slower developmental period. So some of that could factor in there. Um, but uh, un unfortunately, there's not a lot of these phylogenetic approaches that have been done when it comes to contaminants. So that that's one of the unfortunate things. But I think you know, my general impression with some of the work that we've done is we, we generally see pretty consistent values across most amphibian species. And I, I think that's good because that suggests we have some predictive ability that, okay, hey, if this contaminant gets in the system, you know, these certain species or these species as a whole, or this group as a whole, are going to be pretty sensitive to that contaminant getting in the system. Um, but with that said, I kind of jump into kind of a different aspect of some of the research that we've done which is kind of looking at the evolution of tolerance in amphibian populations. So, you know, a few years back, we started down this path of trying to understand, you know, if you have populations that are close to agricultural fields, the likelihood that generation after generation, they're being exposed to contaminants, you know, is going to be pretty high. And again, if you have these contaminants causing, you know, anywhere from, you know, 20 to 50% mortality in a larval population, that has potential to select for increased tolerance in some of those populations. Uh, so we've done some of this work uh, in wood frog populations distributed across 
an agricultural uh, uh, gradient going from basically more pristine habitats all the way down to you know really nasty agricultural systems where these wood frogs might be uh, living. And what we've discovered is just that. So if you have these populations really close to agriculture, we see higher tolerance to malathion and carbaryl, right? Those two insecticides that I mentioned earlier. Um, and also keep in mind, those insecticides have been around since the 1950s. When we do the same experiments with newer pesticides, you know, things like the neonicotinoids, we don't see that same pattern because there probably hasn't been enough time evolutionarily to detect a response. So at least for, you know, some of these um, older insecticides around the market, you know, it suggests that the evolutionary history um, has been influenced in some of these uh, populations. Um, and kind of building off of that, you know, one of the cool things that we found in the populations in more pristine habitats is they have something called inducible tolerance. So what I mean by that is if you give these populations a low dose of a chemical that's not directly lethal, what they can actually do is be more tolerant. So it can induce tolerance to a higher dose later in life. So it kind of primes their body for dealing with that chemical in the future. So we actually think that that inducible tolerance is what enabled them to evolve so rapidly and deal with these contaminants uh, in areas where, again, they've been in close proximity to agricultural fields. So, you know, kind of my point with this is really that pesticides aren't just influencing the ecology of these systems, but also influencing the evolutionary trajectory of these amphibian populations. And it's, it's encouraging to see that there is some evolutionary response, suggesting that they might be less susceptible to these contaminants in the future, but also there's some implications of evolving tolerance. So one of the things that we've shown is if you are higher, more tolerant to a contaminant, you're more susceptible to diseases such as trematodes or ranavirus infections. So there are some trade-offs associated with that evolutionary response. That's really interesting. I was, I was going to ask you whether it, uh, you know, what the long-term chronic effects would be, I guess, on a frog population of being consistently exposed to a certain chemical for generations and generations and whatnot. That's interesting how they were able to uh, develop uh, tolerance. What about, um, no, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say it really, you know, it parallels exactly what you see in agricultural fields with things like weeds, right? So when you apply these, you know, pesticides year after year at high levels, you select for, you know, tolerant weeds and that's why we constantly have to come up with new types of chemicals to get around that tolerance uh so you know the same principles that apply to those weed species or you know pest species also applies to you know our natural you know species that we're concerned about especially amphibians how do pollutants alter a pond or a wetland environment from like a holistic point let's let's just obviously the effect on amphibian populations is, is there at that significant enough, but how does it affect everything else? I mean, is it changing the material that tadpoles might feed on, or is it uh, is it affecting predators that might prey on tadpoles or or larvae? What's is there like a holistic approach that you look at as well when you're monitoring the effects on amphibian populations? Yeah, and, and this is actually one of the areas which I. I when I started doing pesticide research, I got the most interested in because, you know, for me, I just think about all the species interactions that are playing out in these habitats. Um, you know, you have competition, predation, parasitism, all kinds of different things. 
you know, you, you alter one species in these habitats and then, you know, where are the cascading effects on every other you know species in that community? Where are the effects on ecosystems, right? So you can have all these kind of cascading effects that are really important. And again, amphibians provide a really great model system to kind of explore some of those, those things that kind of happen. Uh, so I'll give you a few examples of this. Uh, so again, kind of going back to Malathion, um, <clears throat> you know, when it comes to contaminants, you often want to kind of focus on which species are most sensitive in that overall community. And amphibians are not necessarily the most sensitive to Malathion in particular, uh, but one group that is are zooplankton or uh, daphnia. So these are species that do a really great job of filtering the water of things like algae. So phytoplankton is one of their main resources, uh, but they're super sensitive to malathion. Uh, so if this chemical gets in there, uh, even at low levels, it pretty much knocks out the zooplankton from the system. And when you do that, you have this cascading effect on the entire community. So in particular, what happens is you lose the zooplankton, they no longer consume that phytoplankton. This is suspended algae in the water column. Uh, so that algae blooms and you get this really kind of pea green color in their tanks. Um, but what that does is that shades paraphyton. Paraphyton is attached algae. So if you think about the leaf litter, the plants that you know are in habitats, you know, rocks, those types of substrates, paraphyton is growing all over those things. And that's the resource for tadpoles. Okay, so when you have that, that shading effect, it reduces paraphyton growth. And for the tadpoles, what we see is their growth rate is dramatically reduced. And it's not because they were exposed to contaminants so much. It's because of this other player in the community that was knocked out of the system, and that influences its the tadpole's resource levels. So what we see is slower growth and slower developmental rates. So you know, longer time of metamorphosis, smaller size of metamorphosis following that exposure. And all that was because you eliminated just that one sensitive species uh, from the system. Um, you know, kind of another example of this is seen with um, you can look at some of the herbicides when they get into these systems. Um, some of the herbicides will knock out either uh, phytoplankton or paraphyton. And, you know, one of the studies that we did actually included uh, parasites in the system as well. And what we found when we added some of the herbicides is the herbicides would knock out the phytoplankton from the system, led to an increase in paraphyton in the system. That led to an increase in snail populations, which are the, the first intermediate host for a parasite, the trematodes. And when you have more of those, they generate more parasites to seek out tadpoles. So tadpoles have a greater infection risk when you add the herbicide into the system, again, because of all these cascading effects that basically, basically filter back to them uh, in the community. And then, you know, kind of thinking more broadly about ecosystems, when you're, when you're applying things like herbicides, you know, that's changing the primary productivity of the system, depending on what, um, you know, what species are knocked out. So that can alter dissolved oxygen in the habitat, that can alter pH of the habitat. So there are a broad diversity of kind of broader effects that can happen in some of these systems. So, you know, especially if you get higher concentrations of some of these contaminants, you know, you could potentially lead to almost collapse of some of these systems, again, depending on what kind of groups of species are knocked out at those different concentrations. Um, and then, you know, think about some of the insecticides as well, you know, depending on the composition of the community, if you have a, an insect predator in the habitat, you know, the, the application of insecticide can actually benefit a tadpole from that perspective if you knock out that predator of the tadpole. So a lot of tadpoles, say, behavior might be reduced. It might have reduced, 
you know, development in those things, yeah, at least it might survive if that insecticide knocks out kind of key predator from the system. So it's, you can see how complicated it gets as you start dropping in different components of an ecosystem and thinking about all those cascading effects that can occur. Yeah, those are the interesting points that always I was always curious about because it's so easy to just make a blanket statement that pesticides kill amphibians, but there's, a, from what you're telling me, there, there's a million and one ways that pesticides <laughs> can do it. I mean, it, it's amazing. Yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, it's you, you could basically you could come up with any configuration and kind of show different levels of effects because you know, again, in nature, it, it's going to depend on the composition of the community and the effects that you see. If you're focusing on amphibians, it's going to depend on all the other players in the system and what's going to happen to that amphibian uh, species, for example. Is there a way to restore an environment after it's been contaminated, or is it just sort of a lost cause? Ooh, uh, it depends on the type of contaminant. Um, I think with most of the most of the pesticides, you know, most of them are pretty short-lived. Um, so the system should recover on its own naturally given enough time. So even those zooplankton that I talked about, you know, it'll knock them down pretty good. Um, you know, but they have a, they're pretty resilient and they'll come back over time. Uh, they have pretty rapid generation times. So within a, you know, a month or so that system could be restored. Um, but it really depends on the persistence of the contaminant. Like I said, if it, if it breaks down pretty quickly, most of these systems are pretty resilient and come back. Um, other contaminants like the, the PFAS I was telling you about, those things aren't going anywhere. You know, they're called forever chemicals for a reason. Um, that carbon fluorine bond in the chemical is one of the strongest that we know in nature, and it just doesn't break down. Um, so there's really, for that particular contaminant, we're, we're kind of stuck. You know, um, you know, again, it's not directly toxic, but it's all those sublethal effects that we're really not sure about at this point, especially for wildlife species, about kind of what's playing out. Uh, over time in some of those systems. So for some of those contaminants that are more persistent and don't break down, you know, there might not need to be some remediation strategies that go in and maybe remove the the soil in particular, you know, the sediment and, you know, basically get that out of the system and bring in new clean sediment to help uh, mediate some of those effects. But, um, you know, that, that's a significant challenge, you know, with the PFOS right now, you know, that, you know, we're trying to figure out globally as kind of a scientific community, how do we clean up some of these sites that have been heavily contaminated because you know it's a huge issue some of that water ends up into groundwater so various places across the united states you know they're under drinking water restrictions where they don't want to consume their well water or drink their well water because you have pfos in it um so th there's lots of challenges for sure odd question and i'm just curious about this and again it's, it's kind of apples and oranges because there's so many different chemicals that could have different results but let's just say that you had a, i'll just pick an, an arbitrary species let's just say an american bullfrog uh that came in with a substantial exposure to one of these chemicals or many of these chemicals is there a way that it can recover from this or uh, are many of these chemicals just sort of like you said like a forever chemical where they're kind of stuck with it for life i mean can you can you resolve an acute exposure to any of these things? Mm -hmm. Oh, that's a really great question. Um, so for PFOS in particular, what we have found is, you know, let's go to a kind of a tadpole, a bullfrog tadpole, right? Um, they rapidly uptake those chemicals. They will accumulate them. But if you move them to fresh water, within a few days, they actually have cleared all those chemicals. So if you get them in the fresh water, there's no contaminant in there. Um, they can actually eliminate that contaminant. So 
there's certain contaminants that work that way. Um, you know, things like mercury, which you've probably heard about, I think that's a little more challenging. They don't actually, you know, get rid of that contaminant. I don't know if there's any good, like, you know, treatment strategies for help them getting rid of uh, mercury. Um, and then for many of the uh, pesticides that we work on, you know, again, many of those are short-lived and are quickly metabolized by the animal. So again, if you get them to, into a clean environment, they can typically break down those kind those contaminants and kind of get them out of the system. So it's really about isolating them from the exposure for the most part, for most contaminants. So if you're able to do that, they can to some extent recover from that exposure. That's encouraging, actually. I was, um, I must admit, I'm kind of surprised to hear you say that. I figured that uh, there would sort of be a lost cause, but that is that is encouraging. I just, yeah. I hear, I hear people mention things. You know, oh, I, I uh, a lot of times people will find tadpoles in their backyard, and they'll say, oh, you know what, I had just put down fertilizer, and then the next day I found this big mm -hmm. egg mass in my pool or my pond. What do I do? I mean, obviously, you don't want to mess around with, with transporting species back and forth outside of where they deposited their eggs. But, I mean, it is encouraging that I guess that you, if you move them out of that situation into a fresh uh, freshwater environment, that they would be able to clear it. I'm pretty surprised by that. Yeah, I mean, it, it is is definitely encouraging. And again, you know, a lot of the chemicals that we kind of talk about on a daily basis, most of them break down pretty quickly. And, you know, again, you, you the big concern is that that acute exposure so as soon as those chemicals get into the system you know at what concentration does it reach and if it's not lethal you know the hope is that it's going to break down pretty quickly and have less of an impact on that that population as a whole even more out of left field question i'm going to ask you <laughs> and i I, <laughs> I i this just this just popped into my head now but are there any behavioral changes? I mean, are, are these things aware? I mean, obviously we discussed behavioral fever, but that was really more with, with ranavirus. Are there any behavioral mm -hmm. changes that exposure to these chemicals will cause that you might be aware of? Like, meaning if you go into a wetland, will you see a frog acting differently if it's been exposed to something as opposed to has it not been? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, one of the common things with many of the insecticides, for example, is, you know, most of them are you know, impacting the nervous system in some way of that, that animal. So, you know, it can range anywhere from, you know, kind of erratic movements. So in some cases, again, you're simulating the nervous system. So with some of these contaminants, they'll basically spin around in circles, you know, over and over and over again. Um, so that's a, a clear sign that something's wrong because temples typically don't do that. Um, so that's, you know, really obvious, um, but just like erratic uh, movements as well. Um, and then typically at higher concentrations, you know, one of the things we often see is just lethargy. So they're, they're slow. They'll just kind of float there in the system. Um, so, you know, those types of things are super abnormal, right? So most of the time you walk up to a pond, tadpoles take off, you know, into the deeper part of the, the pond. But if you, if you see individuals kind of spinning around in a circle or, you know, kind of, you know, just kind of floating at the top, that's usually a good sign they've been exposed to something. Um, and you see similar signs with adults as well, where, you know, they, you know, they might not move in response to a stimulus. So you get close to them again, they might not jump into a pond or jump into the forest or something like that. Um, they can also have loss of writing behavior, right? So you kind of flip them on their back and they're not going to kind of roll back over onto their, their stomach, right? Um, so, you know, a lot of those things are also shared with uh, effects that we see of some uh, diseases. You know, it's like ranavirus can cause very similar things like with erratic behavior, 
Um, also discoloration of the skin, we can see that with contaminants as well as ranavirus. Um, so yeah, there's, there's, there's lots of kind of signs of behavioral changes. Um, but some of the more subtle things, like I mentioned earlier, are just kind of basic shifts in activity levels. So they just might be less active. So they're consuming less resources and those things you can kind of pick up on as well. What about outside of the United States? I, I have listeners outside mm-hmm. of the U S and I mean, I'm going to assume that our regulations here, I mean, even by state by state, they can vary, but I don't really know if this is a, the same problem that's happening globally. Do you know if the same chemicals, you know, pesticides, herbicides, et cetera, are the same products being used overseas or is it, are there different products that are, that might not be approved in the U S that are used elsewhere that are causing additional problems? Yeah, that, that that's a great question. Um, yeah, it, it kind of varies by region, but there are some similarities. So I, I'm, I'm pretty sure Roundup's used kind of globally. Um, I think atrazine was used globally as well. You know, the, the companies that produce those, uh, things like Syngenta, um, you, know, you know, these are really well-known companies that have worldwide distribution. So they're using similar uh, active ingredients, I should say. So the name might be different. So they might call Roundup just something different over in Asia or something like that. Uh, but it's probably the same active ingredient, which is glyphosate for the most part. Um, but different countries or different regions also have different approaches for how they deal with contaminants. So the United States differs dramatically from the European Union in how they regulate, you know, pesticides. So we kind of have, uh, the United States kind of has the approach of, you know, you have to prove that there's a problem um, with a certain contaminant. In the European Union, their approach is you have to prove you have to prove that there's not a problem before you can actually start using a chemical. Uh, so, for example, they were one of the first uh, groups, I think, to uh, ban the use of atrazine, uh, whereas the United States still uses atrazine. So, there's some variation across the globe in terms of you know those types of regulations and and what's uh, to use what they can use in those regions. Um, in the tropics. You know, I'm not familiar with the tropics in terms of legislation and kind of what goes on from that perspective, but I know they use things like Roundup. Uh, Roundup was is used a lot to control, um, you know, drug production in various places in the, the, the tropics as well. Uh, so I know they dropped that on things like cocaine fields and um, other types of uh, issues. So there's, again, some fascinating stories out there kind of going down a rabbit hole if you want to uh, <laughs> with, uh, with kind of that topic. But uh, the roundup is a kind of interesting story with that for sure. Uh, but yeah, it, it kind of depends on what region you are in the world. Uh, there's some similarities, some differences for sure. I'm just picturing all that. I'm just, I'm just getting a visual of everything you just said about, <laughs> about these covert operations to, uh, yeah, <laughs> that is, that's, it's, that's definitely going to yes. make my summer reading list this year. I have to find out more about that. That's- yeah. So my yeah, my former advisor Rick Rillier, when he was doing his roundup research, um, there was uh, another researcher named Keith Solomon, I believe is his name, and he had some studies that were done in I believe Colombia. Um, but Rick ended up writing a, kind of a book chapter on the application of these things for uh, kind of controlling drugs. It's it, it's pretty fascinating. So yeah, if you want. If you want, I could try to dig that up and send it to you. Yeah, I want you to send me a link or something <laughs> because now I'm, I'm, I'm really it's, big yeah. into um, uh, I not like conspiracy stuff, but I, I'm I'm very interested in oddball situations that kind of fly under the radar of uh, normal attention. So I'm I'm curious to hear about that. But yeah, that's that's a, a whole other a whole other rabbit hole. I um 
<laughs> I'm curious. I mean, we're, we're kind of at the end here, but I, I wanted to ask you one last question here. Uh, obviously, the human population is not going anywhere, barring some sort of major event, although right now we're sort of in the midst of one anyway. But uh, obviously, we're going to need to produce more food. We're going to have more agriculture. Habitat destruct. It's, it's going to continue. It's, it's not going to stop unless we, we're not here anymore. Where do you see your research and the future of, of pesticides and herbicides and fungicides? Where do you see all this going in the next, say, five or ten years? Ooh, tough one. Um, I think, you know, with, with pesticide research in, in general, it, it's, it's one of those moving targets uh, because these companies, you know, they're facing challenges themselves in terms of trying to get around, um, you know, the, the evolution of tolerance in their pest organisms. So they're always coming up with new chemicals. And I, I think for us as researchers, it, it's kind of hard to, it seems like we're kind of reactionary. We're trying to kind of keep up when they produce this new product, you know, it hasn't been well tested when it comes to wildlife species. So we're trying to catch up with them. Um, and, you know, my hope is that there's, you know, greater collaboration with, you know, industry to kind of figure out, you know, what they're producing and, you know, what the potential risks are. Um, you know, kind of think about the neonic situation. You know, it's great from a vertebrate standpoint that they have less toxicity. Um, but if we think about the invertebrates and invertebrates, you know, we have, you know, millions of invertebrate species that can be sensitive to this chemical. So we're, we're always kind of trading off, you know, kind of the species that are, are kind of our focus on what could be you know, heavily impacted by some of these uh, contaminants. Um, so, I mean, that, that's a significant challenge for us. So, it, it, you know, in one respect, it kind of keeps us busy. So we're trying to kind of keep up with this and understand these overall effects. Uh, but I think if there could be, I mean, my hope is, again, you know, as we move forward, that there's greater collaboration across these different groups to kind of figure out, you know, before something comes to market, that we really look for those, you know, kind of nasty effects of some of these contaminants, especially when it comes to maybe reproductive effects, kind of long-term effects and some of these contaminants. Because, you know, anytime you apply a pesticide, it's designed to kill something, right? There's no you know, doubt about it, right? It's designed to kill some target species. So you're going to expect some mortality of some species out there in the landscape. You know, really the question becomes, you know, how much risk are we willing to kind of absorb or kind of deal with, you know, to have, again, bolster the, the human, you know, need for uh, resources. And that's really what it comes down to. So, you know, if we can make chemicals that are a little bit more you know, targeted or efficient, um, you know, that's hopefully one of the directions we can kind of go. But I think the researchers are always kind of going to be looking for, you know, broader effects of some of these contaminants, even though they might be kind of listed as targeting certain groups. Um, and I, I think the other area of our research is really thinking about solutions. So once we know that there's a problem, you know, how do we go in and potentially fix that problem? You know, that really comes down to some of the PFAS work that we're doing. Um, so, for example, we know the PFAS are these you know, chemicals that persist in the environment. So one of the projects we're working on right now through the Department of Defense, through the CERTUP program, is to actually, they're, they're coming up with alternatives to PFAS that they can use in their firefighting phones, right? Firefighting is a, a critical need for the DOD, especially on things like, you know, their, their you know, ships and at airports and things. Um, so they need a replacement. So we've actually been contracted to look at some of the replacements and examine the toxicity of those replacements 
before they move forward with saying, okay, this is going to be our replacement. So for me, that's one of the most rewarding things in my, my career right now is to say, hey, we can actually make a difference and say, you know, this of the, you know, seven or 10 that you're looking at seems to pose the lowest environmental risk. And for me, that's something to say, oh, hey, I can kind of hang my hat on that and say, we, we contributed a little bit to, you know, the, the decision-making process before it really becomes a huge issue out in nature. So for me, that that's kind of rewarding. And I, and I hope that's kind of the direction we kind of go with contaminants in general. So starting to think about, you know, that preemptive approach to examining, you know, toxicity before it actually becomes a problem out in nature. Well, that's encouraging. I, I, I don't think that many people realize the extent to which things are just have to be managed. I mean, just for the sake of feeding the, the world population and public safety, public health, and things like that. I mean, these things are not going to go away. You know, I mean, we're not going right. to stop using pesticides. I mean, even mosquito control alone no. <laughs> is, you cannot, you just, it's, it's not within the realm of reality here. So, but, um, yeah, that's encouraging though, that, that, you know, the, the idea of, excuse me, I guess say the object of, of, of management is becoming more and more important, you know, rather than, um, just kind of turning a blind eye to it. Cause it seems like so much has changed in the past 50, 60 years. I mean, even in the, you know, the building and construction industry, which I've been in, you know, in and out of for, for years, so many of the chemicals and products, I mean, asbestos, for example, um, it, it's silica, all, all these things, which were hailed as, as, you know, game changers when they first came out into the, into the industry are now, you know, it's, it's not something that, uh, people want to be around anymore and obviously regulations and things have changed so that they don't um they're not used or at least not for the original purposes that they were used before mm -hmm. but um yeah it'll be interesting to see what happens in uh you know in five or ten years mm -hmm. well i totally agree but yeah it keeps us busy as researchers yeah <laughs> well, that. no that's 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 it's a good thing it's i'm i'm glad that's i'm glad someone's paying attention because i don't think enough of us are but um, so if anyone, any listeners wanted to find out more about your research and, um, you know, maybe if they want to read some of your papers or find out what you're up to now, how, how would they be able to find that information? Yeah, sure. If they go to, uh, uh Purdue university department of forestry and natural resources, they can find my, my link there. I'm trying to quickly pull up my website if I can uh, find it here for you guys. Uh, give me a second. So if you go to uh, www.purdue.edu uh, forward slash FNR forward slash my last name, H-O-V-E-R-M-A-N, uh, you should be able to find my website. And on there, you can be, uh, you can cruise through there and find lots of our, our publications on Ecotox, disease ecology, and, you know, kind of general community ecology as well. Great stuff. Well, Jason, I want to thank you so much for doing the show. It's been a real pleasure having you on. As, as always, I, I, I learned a bunch and, um, you know, this is always a topic that's been really interesting for me because, you know, like we discussed, uh, you know, amphibians are just seems to be like the default model organism. And it's interesting to get a grasp on some of the ins and outs of something that could be so devastating as, uh, as pesticides and herbicides and, and fungicides. I wasn't even aware that we were using fungicides to the extent that we were. <laughs> so, all right, everyone. Like I said, I want to thank you all for listening. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode and I'll catch up with you all again soon.